switching back to Vipassana because uh, eating meditation is like the best experience ever, don't you think? The burst of the pomegranate seeds is just that much more intense. And, uh, I don't even like minestrone, but tonight it was divine. And it seemed a lot more silent in the dining room, less clinking of the utensils. So I'm switching back. Uh, the topic, or the well, topic and the <clears throat> title of this talk, sometimes talk title themselves, is called Love and Intimacy. So on Saturday morning at City Center, the temple where I have lived, and it's in the city uh, where my teacher lives and where I practice regularly. Um, on Saturday mornings, on public day, we have a half day of there's sitting and orioki and then the, there's um, meditation or zazen instruction and then form instruction, groups meet, la la la, the talk, the dharma talk for the public. So a while ago I was there to give zazen instruction and part of that is just to introduce people to the temple. So I was afterward pointing out the table in the corner where we have um, the flyers for all the different sitting groups and events. So I said, well, there's a sitting group for recovery. There's a sitting group for young urban Zen. There's a sitting group for queer Dharma. And someone went, oh, that's particular. <laughs> and I was like, you know, part of me is like, eh, why that one? Not recovery, not young urban Zen, you know? <laughs> but I was like, well, you know, it's a chance for people to, with commonality to get together. That's what I said. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the question does arise, well, what is the purpose of a queer group or a lesbian group, right, a women's group? Um, so, of course, it's important for us to get together and have a common language, sharing common interests, use examples such as my girlfriend or my partner, and not have repercussions or such. So it's a legitimate want, I'd say. Bell Hooks, do people know who Bell Hooks is? Is she queer? I just want her to be queer. Okay, good. I was trying to remember that. Is it just because you want her to be queer? You know. So Bell Hooks, from her essay called Contemplation and Transformation, which I've carried around since I've read it, from the book Buddhist Women on the Edge, says, a culture of domination like ours, ours says to people, there's nothing in you that is of value. Everything of value is outside you and must be acquired. This is the message of devaluation. So that desire to find validation for who we are is really strong coming from and or more, one or more oppressed groups. Um, and here's another story that I heard that illustrates this. Um, I heard the story about a man who went to see a teacher in you know, practice interview. And um, the person said, I don't want to be tolerated for being gay. I want to be loved for being gay. 
And the thing that always comes up for me, even now, whenever I talk or remember the story, is the poignancy of that statement, because, you know, it resonates with me, too. I want to be loved for being queer. Um, I don't want to be tolerated. You know, I want to be loved for all parts of me to be seen and loved for that, especially those parts that are often rejected, feared, hated, and devalued. In fact, we were at the first dinner, we were talking about, you know, how many people had been here for this retreat, and Davida, usually, oh, there you are now, you were here for a while, and I were like, this is our first lesbian retreat, can you believe it? I mean, in terms of a long, I did a one day with Arena many, many years ago, a lesbian one day, but in terms of a retreat. So, so in a group like this, I can say without a doubt, right, that I love all of you, right? for being who you are, for being lesbians. And in this space, we can cherish each other's, our queerness, and celebrate it. And, and if this need for wanting love comes from having to a sense of having had to defend our, our sense of self or to assert it, a sense of self, because it's, you know, out, from the outside often devalued. Uh, then what would it mean, right? What would it take for us to go beyond that need that comes from a craving, a grasping, right? Especially as conditioned by internalized oppression. Because the purpose of practice is not to learn to love ourselves. The purpose of practice is not for self-improvement. We don't, make, we don't practice to make ourselves better, calmer, nicer, or whatever adjective you want to use more lovable person or practitioner. Uh, Dosho Port, in the book, um, he was a student of Katagiri Roshi. Do people know Katagiri Roshi? He, was, he came from Japan to help uh, Suzuki Roshi start Zen Center. He was even an abbot for a brief while after Suzuki Roshi's death. Um, Natalie Gober, you know the writer? That's her teacher. So uh, this, in this book, uh, Dosho practiced with Katagiri Roshi, and he, um, it, he shared a lot of uh, practices he did with him and things he learned while practicing with Katagiri Roshi. And so each chapter starts out with a recollection of an interaction between Katagiri Roshi and one of, one of the students. And in one it says, a student said to Katagiri Roshi that when he was upset, he'd go sit zazen. Right? That's our word for meditation for a while. He goes at Zazen for a while to process the situation, and then he always felt better, calmer. He always felt calmer, he said. And uh, this dosho saying, category scowled when he heard this and said, that's not the purpose of Zazen. So then you say, well, what is the purpose then, Lynn, 
for us to be here. So I want to propose to you for your consideration that the purpose of practice is to observe and be with the process in this context of how the craving and grasping for love can can move to a knowing and an increasing of capacity for intimacy. And how do we do that? We start by understanding our experience fully. We've talked about this all along. We stop running away from our pain and our suffering, our disease, and turn towards it. We see it fully for what it is. Where do you feel the suffering of feeling unloved, not wanted, other? And where, where can you be intimate with those feelings? Um, I was trying to think of an example of a queer example of this in terms of a practice setting. And um, I was thinking, well, there, you know, when I came out, I was a little bit older. You know, I was 18 or 19. And my parents um, took it pretty well. You know, one, I was just like, oh, I'm a lesbian. You know, I love somebody, and if that's the name, then that's what it is. So I was kind of not telling about it. And I told my parents, and they took it okay. And in fact, then... Um, in Zazen earlier, I remember, you know, maybe I was partly okay with it because the next morning after I came out to my parents, my mother said to me in the kitchen, she said, I don't understand it, but if you have love in your life, that has to be a good thing, right? So perhaps that's where my sense of queerness hasn't had so much stickiness around it. And my sense of things is much more around race, given my history. So um, here's a story about that. So this is at a monastery of a convert Buddhist monastery, mostly white. And I'm sitting in um, the meditation hall. It's also the lecture hall in this place. And it's a rectangular room, and the teacher sits in the middle. And if this was kind of the shape, it's bigger, but the teacher's there, and I'd be over there in that corner. Right? And uh, the teacher was talking, uh, giving a talk, and had a, talked about a koan. And the koan, called the wild geese, a wild duck koan. And it goes like this. A monk and Master Ma are walking in the garden. Right? And a bird flew up from the bushes or the grass. And the master says, where have they gone? And the student said, they have gone away. So the master reached out, grabbed the student's nose so hard and twisted it so hard that the student screamed in pain and became enlightened. That's the koan. It's a Rinzai koan, right? (laughs) <laughs> They're stricter than us, right? And all about hitting and you know screaming and stuff, right? So the teacher brings it up, and then he says, and it's a white white man. 
He says, you know, this koan collection comes from the um, 13th century China, right? These koans. And so you know in China, they have flat noses. So a master probably would need to carry a handkerchief to be able to grip the nose better. You know, and you know, last night I did notice, you know, how I sit in zazen when I'm listening to like that's our style, right? And uh, so you know, I'm looking, you know, I'm looking down. And when he said that, so I'm, I should actually actually add, I'm in a sashin when he's giving the lecture, and I've been at the monastery over two years. Uh, many, many retreats, right? So I was very settled. It was towards the end of a a 90-day practice period, right? In the whole winter, actually. So I was very settled. And when he said that, everything went still and silent. And when I looked up, my experience was the zendo elongated, and everyone in the assembly, or the, the meditation hall, was, went with it, right? And in my head, very clear. Ah, other. Right? And that was so clear, and I just knew, ah, other. There was no sense of a, a flush to the face of like anger or a heaviness of heart, or constriction of throat. It's just very clear, ah, other. And in that, I could really understand that what the, not that I was feeling the pain, I understood what the pain of otherness was for me, right? Which is that I felt part of the group. And in that moment, then I felt away from the group, separated from the group. And that's the, the pain of the sense of other for me in that moment. So with time and effort, right, we start to really um, know more deeply what the pain is. Right? In the past, in terms of race, you know, I've been an activist or was an activist for a long time. So I, you know, marched and did all sorts of things, and I'm not saying I wouldn't do those things. And having known that the pain, and, and, and in that, you know, it's very healing, because now when the sense of otherness arise, I, I, it's like uh, us talking about um, the hindrances, right? Being able to identify what it is, actually to be able to name it gives it a lot of space. It, it, it doesn't become about me. I understood that the conditions contributed to me feeling other. It was, whereas before, I internalized the sense of other and kept thinking I was other, you know, defended it, that I'm not, or whatever, but, but it still resonated, that belief that I was other. And in there, I just really tell that was conditions made for the rising of other. So, with time and effort and practice, um, we start to see uh, 
how our responses um, has a pattern to them, and we relate to it differently. And in that, we also then move beyond the perspective of subject and other, right? And, in, and we know it for the process itself. This is how the process of other can arise. And uh, the other thing about um, having, had to, having to defend a sense of self or to assert a sense of self because of, say, oppression or other ways of being discriminated or put down um, is that in the making of the self, we also um, tend to make things um, related to the self, like not just about me, but about mine, right? Me and mine. Uh, so, recently I had an experience that was really helpful to see that process. I'm in a, another session, the last one here in uh, December. And our um, session seven day, we have a lecture every morning, a Dharma talk every morning at 10. And it's in the Buddha Hall, which is the ceremonial hall. And when the person comes in to give the talk, you actually all stand up. You experience this. You all stand up waiting for the person. You face the wall where the altar is because when they come in to offer incense or flower petals, then they'll do three full prostrations and you do it with them. And the same thing at the end. Um, So when I turn to face, this is the third day of a seven day. So when I turn to look, uh, to face the wall, waiting, um, I'm actually looking out the window into the courtyard. And there's a fountain there that, um, you know, comes up, I don't know, about four feet high, Art Deco style, with like a bird bath on top, and then the water spills over into the pool underneath, right? And this, it was a sunny day, and you know, in Zen you're busy, remember I told you, so this is the first time I've kind of looked outside for the day, right? And uh, so I look out and it's, uh, the sun is shining down and the birds are taking their bath and as the water went over, it hit the pool and little bubbles came up. And I thought, oh, lovely, what a lovely lovely sight, right? And I was just basking in how beautiful it was. So the person gives the talk. La, la, la. Right? Next day, it's another lecture, and it's the same teacher, another lecture. So I'm turning to face, and I happen to be in the same spot, looking out, and so automatically I go looking towards the fountain, because it was so lovely yesterday, right? So I look and I see, you know, the sunlight is still out there and the water's coming down. And then I go, oh, where are my lovely bubbles? Where, where are my lovely bubbles? You know? And in that moment, I thought, they're not your lovely bubbles. They're just bubbles. But it was totally like, where are my lovely bubbles? You know? And in that, I could say, ah, this is selfie. Do you know, like, they're, they're, they're bubbles and don't have to do anything about me, 
doesn't mean I can't appreciate them. So Dogen, the um, founder of Soto Zen Japan, in a fascicle called Kenjo Go, uh, Genjo Koan, which translates to the actualization of reality, he says, to carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. Let me repeat that. To carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. Right? So how do we meet the myriad things that come? including our pain, our suffering. And let them, or let the experience naturally unfold. And to be open to that. And to me, that's called being a, a way of being open to not knowing, as opposed to imposing what we think it is on it. If When we go forward, we place ideas and concepts on things. If we approach things, that things arise and we go to meet them, right? And they arise on their own and come forth and they give us information. So we have to be in the sense of not knowing for that. Does that make sense? So it's this balance between getting closer and knowing more and getting closer and being open to um, receiving, right? holding, knowing, and not knowing. Suzuki Roshi said, not knowing does not mean you don't know. It doesn't require us to forget everything we have known or to suspend all interpretations of a situation. Not knowing means not being limited by what we know, holding what we know lightly, so that we are ready for it to be different. Maybe things are this way, but maybe they are not. So what I'm going for here is if we bring our full attention to what's happening, right? Balance it with knowing and openness and curiosity. Uh, This brought up a memory. of, do you remember when you were in biology class? I think it was more like elementary school um, when you got to see um, slides for the first time of cell structure, do you remember? And um, also you got to see, you know, the film of a amoeba, right? Like a Super 8 movie or something, right? Um, so... Uh, so you you know you learn you learn you look in the microscope or you see this on film and you learn uh, or so first you know you see your hair follicles you see skin and you know you know this is skin but when you see it in the slide you see the cell structure and it becomes another way of knowing skin right the nucleus so um, in terms of amoeba right you learn it's called the cell membrane 
I have to go look this up, by the way. I don't remember the specific, right? The ectoplasma, the endoplasma, the nucleus, I remember, right? Um, and, you know, maybe it was only the jumpiness of those old films, but I remember most about it was the pulsating and the humming, right, of the amoeba as you're watching it go about its life, you know, extending the pseudopod, reaching out to engulf a paramecium, right? And then it comes inside itself. So you all remember, right? Right? So I'm thinking our practice is like that, right? We get closer, and it's important to get closer to see more. And then at some point, though, you have to, um, and you have to sustain your attention to keep getting closer, right? And then, but then at some point, you have to let wander, wander, W-O-N-D-E-R, right? Wander, take over, right? Because, you know, as I confessed, I had to look up all the making of an amoeba, but the thing that I remember, right, is that pulsating as it went about its life. And the awe-ness that it comes from, I can still remember the awe I had when I watched that. Dogen again says, enlightenment is intimacy with all things. Not some things, not the things I like, right? But enlightenment is intimacy with all things. Um, this morning, I think I, I, I told you that quote that I remember, Charlotte Joko Beck, and didn't I say, Buddhas come forth? Isn't that what I said? And it was while I was sitting, and I thought, oh, yeah, that's nice. I, I want to go looking for it, and I, because I happened to have it with me, the um, writing. And I went looking for it, just because, you know, I was excited. And actually, she says, Buddhas come whole. Buddhas come whole. And when I looked at it more, it actually goes really well, this talk, so... This is what she says, and it's from uh, it's Charlotte Joko Beck from Everyday Zen, the chapter called Practicing This Very Moment. When you sit, don't expect to be noble. When we give up the spinning mind, even for a few minutes, and just sit with what is, then this presence that we are is like a mirror. We see everything. We see what we are, our efforts to look good, to be first, or to be last. We see our anger, our anxiety, our pomposity, our so-called spirituality. Real spirituality is just being with all that. Real spirituality is just being with all that. I repeated it, right? If we can really be with Buddha, who we are, then it transforms. Shibayama Hiroshi said once in Sashin, this Buddha that you all want to see, this Buddha is very shy. It's hard to get him to come out and show himself, end quote. So Charlotte Chucklebeck says, what is that? Oh, excuse me, why is that? 
because the Buddha is ourselves. And we'll never see the Buddha until we're no longer attached to all this extra stuff. We've got to be willing to go into ourselves honestly. When we can be totally honest with what's happening right now, then we'll see it. We can't have just a piece of the Buddha. Buddhas come whole. Our practice has nothing to do with, quote, oh, I should be good, I should be nice, I should be this or that, end quote. I am who I am right now, and that very state of being is the Buddha. I am who I am right now, and that very state of being is the Buddha. So Buddhas come whole. So we don't practice for self-improvement because we're already whole and complete. So how can we learn, right, you and me, to know it and to trust We are Buddha, and Buddhas come whole. Thank you for your attention.